You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Make sure your online activity and data is protected with the best VPN money can buy. Visit expressvpn.com slash missionlog right now and get three extra months free through our special link. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Expressvpn.com slash missionlog to learn more. This episode is also sponsored by Star Trek Wines. Visit StarTrekWines.com today for limited edition Chateau Picard, Klingon Blood Wine, Canar, and many more. Use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion for free. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 485, Warlord. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we focus on an episode of Star Trek and undergo an, a near out-of-body experience, searching for the morals, meanings, and messages contained in that episode, and see if it withstands the test of time. This week, Warlord, the one where Kess's whole being is turned about by an intruder... While Neelix's hospitality program is being broed out by Tom and Harry. I'll have trivia for you in just a moment, but first, a word from one of our sponsors this week, Star Trek Wines. You know, Norman and everybody, mm. we have asked all of you before what you're sipping when you watch Star Trek Picard. And I think we all know that the right answer is Chateau Picard from the mm. actual Chateau Picard in France, sold in extraordinary in-universe bottles from our friends over at Star Trek Wines. They are screen accurate because they are the ones that are made for the screen. And you can enjoy them at home in 2221, 2386, and 2401 vintages exactly as seen on screen. But Norman, my friend yes. and other yes. friends listening, did you mm. know... They also have a full line of other in-universe wines that you might want to sample and collect. Like, uh, I don't know, what is one of your favorites? Oh, I do know. And I have collected. And mm -hmm. my favorite so far, because I haven't tried them all and I really want to, mm -hmm. is the Canar. I think the mm. Canar is – the varietal in the Canar is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I love having it with – it's it's a more like a lighter red blend. Mm -hmm. So it's not too heavy, not too spicy. And – there are two reasons why I love this. One, the wine. Two, the bottle. The bottle is absolutely, I think, the most exquisite thing that I have seen in a long time when it comes to a replicated prop, you know, full yeah. collection. And yeah. it has incredible wine inside of it. Now, if you like the bolder, spicier side, that's your Klingon blood wine. I have tasted that. The rare to medium rare Targ. I think it's absolutely perfect. <laughs> no, I'm no kidding aside. It yeah. is. It's phenomenal. It's it's full bodied. It's spicy. It's a, it's really good. It just has great mouthfeel. Mm -hmm. I think that you would like that. But you know, between the Canar and the Blood Wine, I think that's a really nice range. I, I like that uh, Cleon Blood Wine with like a uh, like a charcuterie. Some of you have like some spicy and and little you know oh, sure. different diff yeah. different spice levels and and some bold foods go along with it. Uh, that Klingon Blood Wine is great, and that Canar, like you said, they nailed it with the bottle it just you look in ds9 and you look on the set anytime somebody reaches for a bottle of canar that's it that's the one that you've got then on your shelf and i love that they include that uh that vino seal the stopper to go mm -hmm. back on it so after you open it after you finish that wine you can reuse that bottle as you have as a decanter and it looks fantastic so they really nail it from both angles both the quality of the product in the bottle and then the mm -hmm. quality of that bottle as a collectible that you get to keep and use after so if you want to take a look at these wines and more their entire selection of all the different varieties that they have please visit startrekwines.com today for limited edition chateau picard klingon blood wine canar and many more Use our special code Roddenberry at StarTrekWines.com for an exclusive United Federation of Planets medallion for free. And now, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. 
All right, trivia for Warlord. We have a story by Andrew Shepard Price and Mark Gaberman. And you may not remember those names right away, but you should, because Andrew and Mark gave us, and everyone else, a lot to talk about in their first episode of Voyager, Tuvix. We will have this writing duo back three more times on Voyager. They pitched the premise in which Cass is possessed by the consciousness of a warlord, and the teleplay duty fell to friend of the show, Lisa Klink. And speaking of Voyager veterans, it was David Livingston who directed this outing, and it seemed to be the right match for what Lisa envisioned because in her estimation, David just kept the pacing up at a high from start to finish. Let's meet our guest stars. We get to welcome back a handful of veteran Star Trek guest stars for this episode. In the role of Nori, not to be confused with how you wrap your sushi, is Galen Gerg, who you may remember from the DS9 episode, The Visitor, in which she played Corina, the future Jake Sisko's wife. Demas is played by Brad Greenquist, and we also saw him before on DS9, though that was as Crit in the episode Who Mourns for Morn, which aired a little over a year after Warlord. And we will catch Brad again in two episodes of Enterprise. Then there's the notorious Tyran, played here by Lee J. McCloskey, an actor we saw as a villain in DS9 when he appeared as Joran Bellar in Field of Fire. New to the Star Trek franchise as of this episode are three actors. There's Anthony Crivello, who plays Aiden. While his on-screen credit may not be as many as some, uh, that's because Anthony is best known as a stage actor with more than a 100 credits to his name. In fact, he picked up a Tony in 1993 for a supporting role in Kiss of the Spider Woman on Broadway. Charles Emmett plays General Resch, and you may have seen Charles back at the beginning of his career with guest spots on shows like Quantum Leap, L.A. Law, and Beverly Hills 90210, or later on with more recent appearances on the Will and Grace show or the rebooted SWAT. Carl Wiedergott plays the youngest son of the Autarch Amaron. Carl started in the business as a teenager and has a stage background, including touring with the award-winning Torch Song Trilogy. TV and film roles followed, and he also provided his voice talent for a number of projects, including The Simpsons and The Simpsons Movie. That wraps up in 2010, though, and in that year, he moved out of the U.S. and presumably away from his on-screen career. We will, however, catch Carl one more time in an episode of Enterprise. Do you ever feel like you're just not yourself? It happens to everyone, but not quite like this. Prologue. On the holodeck, Neelix, Tom Paris, and Harry Kim sit in a relaxing Talaxian spa simulation where massages and chill vibes are the order of the day. Neelix is in heaven, but Tom and Harry liven it up with their own preferences. Music, cocktails, ladies. But the fun and games are interrupted by Captain Janeway's call to the bridge. Act 1. It's an alien ship, badly damaged and on the verge of destruction. Voyager's crew is able to detect three passengers and beam them directly to sickbay just as the craft explodes. In sickbay, the EMH and Cass get to work, assessing the condition of the three aliens. One is so badly hurt that their medical intervention is of no use. He dies, and the alien woman with him cries out at the loss of her husband, Tyran. Later, Janeway gets the story from the two survivors— one is a physician, Aiden. The other, Nori, is cousin to the Autark, the top dog in their political system. They were probably attacked by mercenaries who wanted to hold them for ransom. But they're fine now and just want to get back to their homeworld, Ilari. In the meantime, Nori has developed a friendship with Kess thanks to her compassion when Tyran died. In fact, Kess is called by Neelix just as she is giving the two guests a full tour of Voyager— when she joins Neelix in the holodeck, he's a bit anxious about planning their fun activities, and she's a bit distant, thinking of her duties for Nori and Aiden. In fact, she may just need some time to herself, in general, 
and not so much with Neelix. He's hurt, bewildered, and he doesn't need to think too much longer about it because the next time we see Kess, she and her new alien friends are in the transporter room, kill the transporter tech and the Autarch's representative who had beamed up, and then escape in one of Voyager's shuttles that they beamed into space. Huh? Act 2. Voyager attempts to pursue, but Kess and her alien pals have been very clever in hiding their tracks. But why? On board, it becomes clear that Cass is not herself. Her voice, her demeanor, everything has changed as she and her two cohorts position themselves above an encampment of soldiers on Alari. They beam up Resh, a general, who is shocked at the tech as much as he is his leader's appearance. Yes, Tyrion died, but his consciousness was placed in the body of the kind nurse, Kess, who attended to him until he died. So yes, Tyrion isn't who anyone expected, but Resh's doubts are quelled when Tyrion uses some of Kess's psychic powers to bring him to his knees in pain. This little girl, as Resh calls her, has his loyalty. Janeway meets with Demas, the heir to the Autarch, to get his side of the story. Surprise, Aiden and Nori are dangerous extremists, and Tyrion is the consciousness of a despot who ruled Ilari two centuries ago. Somehow, he's been moving his mind from host to host. Kess was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, Demas' priority is to stop him from whatever is next, but Janeway's priority is to get Kess back, if she can. They might be a bit late, because on the surface, Cass and the others have beamed into the Autarch's Imperial Hall and opened fire, killing everyone except for the Autarch's youngest son. In short time, Cass, Tyrion, takes the talisman from the Autarch's body and proclaims himself the new Autarch. Act 3. Tyrion wastes no time making things his own. There's redecorating, titles to be handed out, alliances to be forged. He reminds Nori that she is still special, even if the physical appearance isn't what either of them had expected, and then moves on to Amaron, the previous Autarch's youngest son. Tyrion attempts to seduce him as well, with the promise of power, the likes of which he would not have had if the original line of succession had stayed in place. On Voyager, Demas is aware of the situation, and even though he is the rightful heir, there's a very real struggle for loyalty on Ilari. He's ready to fight, but Janeway is ready to explore alternatives, like whichever one would get Kess back. There may be a breakthrough for that plan. The EMH has discovered that the Ilarian corpse on board has a cortical implant which enhanced Tyrion's neural pattern. That was transmitted through bioelectric microfibers in the Ilarian's hands directly into Kess. The EMH can reverse it, but he's got a device that needs to come into direct contact with Kess to extract those patterns. While Demis is ready to start shooting, Tuvok has an idea for an undercover operation. Meanwhile, Tyrion, in Kess's body, is having a difficult time. He's got a new cortical implant to keep those neural patterns in check, but the Ocampan physiology isn't something they planned on and may not be fully compatible. While Kess has some great mental powers, she's also fighting back, causing headaches, literal and figurative, for Tyrion. One of those headaches occurs when he feels a presence in the room from Kess's former life aboard Voyager, Another mind, a disciplined Vulcan mind. The more Tyrion paces among the guards and servants, he finds who he's been looking for, but only after Tuvok can temporarily attach the doctor's neural pattern device to Kess's face. With weapons drawn, Tuvok has to stand down, and Tyrion decides to keep him alive for tactical advantage, even though they both know he won't spill anything under torture. Act 4. Yeah, but Tyrion will still try to intimidate Tuvok anyway. He's not budging. Come on, he's Tuvok. That just makes Tyrion more frustrated until he breaks out the big guns trying to delve into the Vulcan's mind, finding any advantage, any emotional weakness. Then when he does make a telepathic connection, maybe getting under Tuvok's skin about a latent desire for Kess, he draws closer for a kiss... Tuvok seizes the opportunity for a quick mind meld to try to reach Kess, who is still there, trying to fight Tyrion. 
In frustration, Tyrion's personality breaks through again and hurls Tuvok against a rock wall. On Voyager, Janeway is considering a new approach to rescue and a show of force. Tyrion calls up, though, with a demand that Voyager leave orbit. He's got Tuvok, after all, and armed soldiers awaiting any move by them. In the communique, though, he's clearly experiencing worse headaches and ends the call. Voyager leaves orbit, and Tyrion can't sleep or the image of Kess will come back, but he's fatigued. And as he dozes off, the two personalities face each other in a dream. Tyrion tries, against Kess's protest, to draw her in as an ally. She fights back with such a show of mental force that Tyrion will never have full control of her mind, and the showdown is cut short when Aiden uses a stimulator to bring Tyrion out of sleep. This infuriates Tyrion to the point of using his mental power to kill the Doctor. Act 5 Tyrion is in full celebration mode and even announces to his assembled guests that Amaron will be her, uh, his husband. It's a political arrangement, and Tyrion is hoping that this won't sour things between him and Nori, such as it is. The celebration and uh, whatever will follow is postponed, though, when it appears that Voyager is back in orbit and now on the offensive. Tom Paris beams in to rescue Tuvok, while Janeway and a small crew take the attack on the Imperial Hall. Lots of phaser fire, and Tyrion is already weakened from the continuous headaches. He sees Neelix approach and pulls out a weapon, but Neelix stuns Kess's body first and applies the EMH's bit of tech to extract Tyrion's neural pattern. Too late, though, he already transferred it to someone else, someone close, like Amaron, who Kess IDs right away. She approaches with the device and extracts Tyrion once and for all. With that, she hands the ceremonial Autark amulet to Demas, making him the new rightful leader of Ilari. Later on Voyager, Kess shares her thoughts with Tuvok, and it's a problem. She can't access some of her usual ability and discipline, and has some regret about not being able to do more to fight Tyrion. She's been profoundly changed by the experience, and Tuvok says she can't simply be who she was before. The course of Kess's life will change. Where it leads is up to her. The end. Nicely done, John. Thank and, you. And uh, I think we're just going to jump right into it because... As Neelix's toes. Oh, God. Why? <laughs> you, you said... I was trying to, like, slide to, into it. No, not to, I know, but you said we had to... This is like ripping the Band-Aid off. All right. You just... You said we got to get in and... Uh, Neelix's feet. Ooh. I'm sorry. Something. I'm sorry. We had to. Weird choice, like... I had to freeze frame every now and then, and you have that really interesting makeup choice of like making the little toe as big as the big toe by mm-hmm. human standards, you know? Just I, any other comments or fear or <laughs> disgruntlement or oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. nightmares you want to share with us? As, as many of the audience know out there that we write our notes independently, so I, my note was Neelix getting his uh, his massage, his foot massage. He is in the yeah. toes of ecstasy. Hey. Oh, that's good. Right? That's good. I like what you did there. Yeah. All right. Never to be mentioned again, <laughs> except every time it comes up. Yeah. All right. Cool or not cool to have Tom and Harry completely change Neelix's relaxation program to be what they want. It was a bro move. It was a power bro move yeah. by those two guys. Right. Yeah. 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 We can talk about that. Continued. Yeah. But so here's something technical that I wanted to talk about. And I brought this up when uh, in when the doctor had his champagne at the end of Futures End Part 2. Like he's having real champagne, yeah. but he's a holographic doctor. So where does it go? But this takes the complexity a little further. Right. If you're drinking holographic drinks, what are you ingesting? See, okay, I in this case, I will go back to Dr. Pulaski. And way back, season two, uh, mm-hmm. meeting Moriarty and uh, in Elementary Dear Data. And Dr. Pulaski has tea and crumpets with Moriarty. Sure. And I thought, okay, now you've got the holodeck 
acting like a replicator. So mm-hmm. if we picture that hollow grid, that's pretty much just pumping out photons and, and force fields to make you like bump into a brick wall or interact with a person if that person is there, right? But right. there's got to be a beam there that is also a replicator to make a thing you can actually eat. Um, and you're just pulling from whatever replicator power you would that would be like, you know, using replicator in your room or or in a galley somewhere. So I think that I, I'm still very confused about the EMH drinking champagne, though. But here are a couple other things that just branches off. Like, okay, that I, I know it's so complicated when we get there. Okay, <laughs> right. so yeah, if they're drinking cocktails and they're holographic, are they hollow hall as opposed to synthahol? Ooh, it might be a different thing. Right. Uh, okay. Okay. I like where you're going with that. And yeah. then, if that's the case, if you're, like you're saying, if like tea and mm-hmm. crumpets, you know, yeah. they're kind of like that is just a, a small representation of actual meals that you can eat on the holodeck. Then why yeah. not just eat on the holodeck? Oh, uh, see, especially when you got a guy like uh, Neelix cooking your food. Right. <laughs> then, so you yeah. can you can have yeah. like these great meals, like you know, <sighs> Wolfgang Puck. You know, a holographic version of Wolfgang Puck making you these incredible meals. And if they're not nutritionally up to par, then you just get a supplement, you know, during, you know, like in your vitamins. But I love that. You go in there, like, go to the holodeck. I would like to eat at Delmonico's in Mm -hmm. 1889. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I would like to eat at Lutece in 1960. Yeah. Last thing, though. Here's the end. I know this is stupid. Okay. All right. Bring it. Bring it. All right. If the safety protocols are on, can you actually choke from food? Ah, ooh. Oh, that is good. Or get poisoned or drink too much or eat too much? Does it raise your caloric intake? (laughs) Does it raise your – you know what I mean? It's just dumb. All of those things are good. It's there. Sorry for wasting everyone's time, but that's just – I like it. That's where my head is right now. I like it. By the way, (laughs) as we close out the the teaser here, I guess when you don't have a cliffhanger, you just fade out on a close-up of Neelix's dancing feet. That's that was the artistic choice. Oh my god, that they made there. Okay, moving on, moving on. <laughs> All right. Speaking of other interesting artistic choices, the makeup on the Alarians, uh, six nostrils uh-huh. instead of two. So good for them. Interesting makeup choice. Sure. And um, yes, I, I do think a little bit presumptuous to think that Voyager's medical procedures would just automatically be able to save totally alien physiology. But you got to try. You got to do what you can. But, you know, there's like, here, inject them with this. Like, that could be poison to them. <laughs> but that's, Star Trek. that's like traditionally Star Trek, isn't of it? Course, of there's course. There's an alien, but they're dying. We'll beam them aboard, and we're going to treat them. But they might kill them. Well, what yeah, are we right. going to do? Well, <laughs> right? better than nothing, right? right exactly. Maybe? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so, Balana's snorkeling gear, right? So, yeah. she's she's taking full advantage of Neelix's – well, I should say not Neelix's anymore. Tom yeah. and Harry's <laughs> new program. And Harry's program, yeah. And she, uh, you know, she's wearing kind of like a modern bathing suit, but she's mm. also carrying very 20th century snorkeling gear. Now, I'm thinking to myself, mm-hmm. you have the engineering brain – that can create spacesuits. So why are you right. using primitive snorkeling gear unless you're just wanting to be in the historical part of snorkeling? Yeah. Yeah, right. I would like to choke on salt water, so let's just get the old gear. Right, that's always fun. <laughs> Instead of, yeah, yeah, sure. that that would be the best part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very clever escape sequence. Like even though we didn't see it all, I like this idea: beam the shuttle into space first, then beam yourself <laughs> aboard. I mean, but, but think about it. I mean, you're, you're laughing, but think, you avoid you avoid having to then go through security at the hangar bay. You avoid having to open the force field on the hangar bay. You just hit one button, hit another button. I'm there. I'm not laughing at that. I'm not. That makes complete and total sense. That makes sense. Yeah. What is killing me about something like this is now you have this is like insult to injury, right? You have yeah. an unauthorized unblockable transport in progress that transports them to a shuttle that was transported out, which was also unauthorized and unblockable. I mean, it's like, it's like they're insulting their own story. They, you know what? Yeah. I'm going to make a suggestion. They should get a security officer on Voyager. Stop it. Just stop it. That's logical. (laughs) I don't come on now. (laughs) I mean, it's shocking, right? Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of escaping on the shuttle, so you have, 
I love how Evil Cast uses her, like, bring the fire telepathy. Because, cold fire! Yeah, I mean, cold yeah. fire! Uh-huh. And yeah. mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden you're like, okay, this is Cass. We're not sure if it's Cass, and now we're kind of, like, not sure if it's Tyrion. But then mm. she does this thing where, like, oh, it makes the guy bleed from all six of his nostrils. Yeah. Right? Right. Maybe that's why they chose six. It's very Maybe. dramatic. Very dramatic, right? yeah. But I was like, okay, now it just got a little serious. You know, yeah. she's flexing, you know, this telepathic ability. Now it just got a little real. Right yeah. There. Yeah. Well, and then taking her or taking Tyrion that next step, honestly, mm-hmm. it's pretty badass to see Kess just wielding a phaser with impunity and taking out the Hilarion seat of power. Yeah. Just boom, 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 one after another. The well shot sequence and pretty cool to see her like that. And no nonsense. I mean, it wasn't like he mm-hmm. uh, goes, I'm giving you one last. No, it was like bang right yeah. there. No, just, no, that was it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she uh, that she learned what the Bond villains didn't learn. Mm-hmm. You know, no monologuing on Kess's nope. part. No, nope. I do like uh, you know. Maybe this is an episode that isn't full of morals, meanings, messages. We'll get there. We'll get there. We got a little ways to go. But uh, Janeway brings a little of that Federation idealism to the Olarians. There are always alternatives to war. Uh, followed by don't risk the lives of your soldiers until you've exhausted every other option. She is at least the voice of reason that we would expect her to be. So mm-hmm. good to see that dropped in there. I Did you notice this? Uh, did you think about this all? Kess as Tyrion has this very slightly intendant Kira look with the wardrobe, mm-hmm. you know, with that high crop on the top and then the, the black on the bottom. Like, and, and that's how you know she's evil. You know, that that's just how it goes. But also, you know she's evil because she's, like, slinking and slithering all over, mm-hmm. like, tabletops. And instead of walking around something, you're just kind of, like, slithering across something. Yes, so yes. And, and I, yeah. It's think, evil and we'll, sultry at the same time. Yeah, I think we'll have to get to some of the body stuff uh, in the next segment for sure. Yeah. So Tyrion's body appropriating mm-hmm. technology, you know, his uh, the way that he did it. Mm-hmm. Would that be considered then um, tearing about intruder? <laughs> You're welcome, John. Just you, for you. you. You have to leave. Uh, I know. <laughs> I'm getting the hook. You can't see the sports. Yeah, the shepherd hook is coming right. out. Yeah. Right. Um, I do have to say, very nicely shot scene where Tyrion tries to sniff out the infiltrator who is Tuvok. It's this well-staged room with a mirror in place, which is already hard to shoot around. And then you have a lot handheld camera following her and kind of reflecting her on ease in the situation. It's very nicely done. Mm-hmm. Um, also, did you notice this? There's a music swell uh, as that scene uh, comes to an end that feels a lot like Gustav Holst Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah. figured you might notice that. That, that was uh, also for UBC. That march was very imperial. I'm just saying. Yes, yeah, 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 very true. Um, yeah. So speaking of that mirror, so I did a timestamp at 26 minutes, 43 seconds, because there's this great shot of Cass mm-hmm. as Tyrion standing in front of the mirror yeah. and then looking at the doctor. But behind Cass, there's Tyrion's portrait kind of like looming large. So yes. you have this really nice stacking of Cass, then Tyrion, then the portrait, all kind of like in this mirror framing. I thought that was really, really nice. Very, uh, what's the word? Um uh, descriptive, I guess, you know, of yeah, kind of like yeah. where the mentality is. Uh, okay, but, but, is. but was the portrait of Tyrion not a little bit distracting because to me it looked a bit like Ron Burgundy? Oh, uh, <laughs> no, um, no. go F yourselves, Voyager, <laughs> right? So I can see it right now, right? So yeah, Tyrion's trying yeah. to escape, but he's hit with a headache, screaming, he's like, oh my God, my brain is so hot. Oh, Kess's <laughs> exactly. body was a bad choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now I'm thinking about Ron Burgundy. This is great. Who doesn't, though, right? Uh, yeah, right. Uh, so also, uh, going back to the mirror, though, mm-hmm. when Tyrion leaves his seat in the council chamber, walks around the council table, it's pointed, like, right at the council ta- uh, the, the chamber table. Like, is yeah. he looking at himself in the mirror the whole time? Yeah. I mean, that's narcissistic. <laughs> I mean, that's, it is. You kind know? of awesome. But he's a despot, yeah. so, hey, you know. Yeah. 
Exactly. I, I do really like the fun. Uh, I mean, look, it's a dark and it's an intense scene, but there is a fun in that interrogation scene flipping the script on the Tuvok and Kess relationship that we've seen so far. Like, yeah. uh, clearly, they knew what they were doing. They're going to have fun with this moment. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, that scene, just because it, it gave you know, a lot of Jennifer to chew on and, and it gave mm-hmm. a lot for Kim to work with, you know, that's just yeah. a great acted scene. Yeah. And it also kind of like, it, it does flip their relationship you know, in a yeah. very dark way. Yeah, sure. yeah, it peels back layers, which is always nice to see. But um, uh, also, uh-huh. I'm surprised that they didn't go for, or at least Tuvok didn't go for the double mind meld grip because he's been using this more oh, frequently yeah, 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 than yeah. before, like going all the way back to, say, when he did it with Ron Suter, Lon, Ron Suter, Ron Burgundy. See, <laughs> now what you've done? Lon Suter, you know, with Lon, the double mind yeah. meld. You know, I'm just... yeah. Oh, thank you, John, yeah. for the ear. Uh, you're welcome. You're yeah. welcome. I do have to wonder when we make the decision to uh, to go after them. Is Neelix really the right guy to take along if he will do everything in his power, and I quote, uh, to save Kess? Because that could compromise the operation. Like, I guess dramatically you have to have him there. But if he's the guy who's so earnest, maybe he's the guy you leave behind. Just an option. Yeah, he, yeah his enthusiasm is great. His yeah. tactical ability or being able to do things that, yeah. you know, save people, maybe not yeah. so much. Yeah, but he yeah. had his moment at least, so right. I'll, I'll give him that. Yeah. Speaking of moments. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that final telepathic torture scene with Tyrion and his doctor, the pooling yeah. blood in the doctor's oh. eyes was in – I mean, it was extreme. Yeah. You know? That was a really – Good moment. Yeah, and <laughs> that was extreme. Yeah, I mean, it was like zero sixty blood pooling in the eyes. You know, yeah. almost immediately, I was like, "Well, I was not prepared for that." That's no, not blood. No, right? no, me either. I, I do it. And look, this is just a, a stylistic thing. Where do you end the scene? What do you do? We already had that traumatic moment with the doctor's bleeding nostrils and bleeding eyes, mm-hmm. but then you end it with this stronger than ever bit repeated by, by Tyrion. Uh, in an episode that has strong scenes and strong moments for the actors, I don't know if that was a very strong scene. Yeah, so, I, I, I think yeah. it's because we're she's trying to like sell herself, or Tyrion's trying to sell himself that I'm still yeah. in charge, but yeah. it didn't really kind of pan out that way. Funny rescue mission. So Tom rescues Tuvok, looks around in the in the in the you know in the cave, and it's like all's clear except for that guy who grabs my ankle, right? And then Tuvok <laughs> nerve pinches him, and then you have your obligatory, your traditional. You're gonna have to teach me how to do that someday. Moment, mm-hmm. right? You know that McCoy and, usually says to Spock, right? Yeah, and, and as far as I know, nobody in Star Trek history has ever learned how to do that from a Vulcan. <laughs> yeah. If you're a warlord and you're just so proud of the warlord progress you've made, do you start tearing up? We'll be right back to Warlord after a word from this week's sponsor, ExpressVPN. And you've heard us talk a lot about it, and you probably know by now that it is a product, it is a tool that Norman and I both use, primarily because it's so easy, but it's so important. And uh, not to overstate its importance, maybe, but Norman, mm-hmm. maybe you could uh, share with us, oh, I don't know, what, oh, I've heard of this uh, data brokers. Yeah. Uh, what, what what do they do exactly? I mean, you've heard of them. I've heard of them. Yeah. Some of our audience may not have heard of them. So if you haven't heard of them, they're the middlemen collecting and selling all the digital footprints that you leave online, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you go online, you leave a presence, and the these data brokers, they find them and harvest them. They can stitch together these detailed profiles, which includes your browsing history, online searches, and location data. Now, they're going to take that and sell all of this, your profile, off to a company who delivers you a targeted ad. We love those because they just pop up out of nowhere, right? Oh, sure. Targeted specifically to me. I mean, no fuss, no Mm -hmm. muss on their end, but yes, it's very intrusive to us. Well, you might be surprised to learn that these same data brokers are also selling your information to the Department of Homeland Security and the IRS. That's very intrusive. And I mean, I don't want the tax guy to show up at my door because of, you know, Kind of like an innocuous search I did on my phone for mm. ExpressVPN. So to mask <laughs> all of my digital footprints, I protect myself. John, you protect yourself. Yes. Many in our audience base, they protect themselves with ExpressVPN. Yeah. 
going on this theme, you know, one of the easiest ways for data brokers to aggregate all that data and tie it back to you is through your device's unique IP address, which also reveals information about your location. Now, when you're connected to ExpressVPN, your IP address is hidden. That makes it much more difficult for data brokers to identify who you are. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your network traffic to keep your data safe from hackers on public Wi-Fi. So that's why I have the ExpressVPN app downloaded on all my devices. And I do on my phone, my computer. Uh, let's see, it's on my TV devices. It's on my iPad. It's on everything. And all I have to do, no matter where I am, is just tap one button to turn it on, and I am protected. It is that easy. So easy, even I can do it. And that's pretty easy. You know? Yeah, that is. It's got to be pretty easy. <laughs> no, but I mean, that's what you want. You want it to be easy. You want yeah. it to be safe. You want it to be reliable. You want it to be Seamless. secure. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So make sure your online activity and data is protected with the best VPN money can buy. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log right now and get three extra months free through our special link. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. All right, Norman, I feel like there are some topics maybe to discuss here that are character-driven. It's not so much like the big picture, morals, meanings, messages, but you may have found stuff that I didn't. But I was really intrigued by a couple of the character explorations that we got here. And I thought one of the more interesting scenes comes way at the top in the first act, and it's Cass and Neelix having lunch. And she expresses her desire to spend some time apart because she's only ever been with Neelix, and he seems to dominate her time. But (laughs) Mm -hmm. after you've watched the rest of the episode, you realize that this scene occurs after Kess has had her mind scrambled with Tyrion, but again, what should we make of her attitude here? Because I feel like we get these little breadcrumbs, right? There's the question of how much Kess was there and how much Tyrion was there at any given point, because we we learn through the time of the episode that there's this kind of back and forth, and Kess is trying to fight through. And then we learn at the very end that there is a part of Kess who is aware of everything that has gone on, and Tuvok drops this bomb, says, like, yeah, you're not the same person anymore. Right. And, you know, we go back to season one and early season two, And we've been through, you know, Neelix's jealousy, which thankfully was a character thread that just got dropped and paved over as it should have. But how should we take her request here and his reaction? Because I I feel like it's something that gets introduced and given a little attention at the end because of that conversation with Tuvok. Like if you think back to where we were, like we're led to believe it's a profound change, but, but then what? So will Kess in the next episode or episodes display a bit more independence? Is this a change in their relationship? What do you think? You know, when I first saw this scene, I actually leaned more into how Neelix was being Neelix again, like the Neelix of old. Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt. And and I'm not sure if that was, you know, uh, something that the director just kind of like let slide and say like, okay, just, you know, here, Johnny, here are your lines, you know, perform in the mm-hmm. best way you can. Because... When they sat down, Neelix was asking her questions in that same condescending Neelix way, you know, and I want to read this dialogue just that everyone knows, you know, I'm going to emphasize Neelix's line. So Neelix, no, Kat says, it bothers you that I'm making friends on my own. You always have to involve yourself somehow. Now, even before we knew that this was Tyrion. Yeah. It it felt an like an honest reaction, like what you're asking, right? You know, it felt honest. It felt like she hasn't been, you know, uh, manipulated, you know, in this way that we do know. After oh, it, the fact, it rings. Right? Tr- it, it rings so true, and that's part of the brilliance of the scene. Yeah, right. And mm-hmm. this was my interpretation of Neelix's line, the way that, you know, that Ethan Johnny that he you know, performed it. <laughs> well, I I don't mean to intrude on your friendship. You can spend time with anyone you want. Like, and it's so. Uh, condescending like 
I don't care. Why would I care? You, you, you don't care that yeah. I care, do you? I'm like, you know, and then Kes says, as long as I still spend most of it with you. She's like, no, I'd hope that you want to be with me. At least some of the times it's not a duty or an obligation, but you're making it sound like it is or it should yeah. be. And this yep. is where this scene really felt like these two characters regressed all the way back to season one. And I thought yeah. that we were past this until this scene, because up until this this scene, this season, we haven't seen the two of them together like this, you know, in a nice, quiet yep. moment. And all of a sudden, it is the same thing that we've seen time and again that you and I have both made mention mm. of where these two characters for some odd reason, with the talent that they have writing for this show, they can't seem to write these characters correctly or believably as yeah. a relationship. And it boggles yeah. my mind that a scene like this actually made it, you know, into this far into season three. Well, let me ask you this. In watching that scene and and having that reaction to it, because I'm still trying to work through how I feel about the scene. The context is a little difficult because now we know, at least to some extent, we know that Tyrion is part of the equation. Do you feel like Kess effectively stood her ground here or she just sits there and kind of takes it from Neelix and then and then has the out like I've got to do things with my alien friends? <laughs> you know, you know, I, I think that as as Tyrion, you know, Kess does. I think the bigger question is, does Neelix care? Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. She can stand her ground all she wants. But if Neelix isn't hearing what she's saying, then the next time they have lunch, it's like, so, sweeting, um, <laughs> did you have a nice time with your friends? Because I would have liked to have had a nice time with your friends, too, if, you know, you would allow me to have a nice time with your friends. And, like, the whole – I'm sorry. Like, I, I'm not I'm – not, making light of of ethan mm -hmm. i think ethan is neelix no, is amazing. no of course and yeah. i've been on the record like praising his quality it's yeah. the character of neelix that i have a problem with here because as far as he's come this scene knocks him back a lot you know in his yeah. development and i found it unfortunate because it was unnecessary and the entirety of that whole over sexualized 90s bro club med holodeck thing too i'm like <laughs> okay yeah I, all right so wait do you want to talk about that because, <laughs> i do i do all right because yeah. it, it was a yeah i mean it, it is a scene that is unfortunately tied to its time and by the way you, you know we have called out when star trek and in particular voyager has gotten it right mm -hmm. when it comes to a civilian thing so like and remember when they're all hanging out before they realize that, you know, they're hanging out with a bunch of space Nazis. Um, they're, they're, they're all hanging out in the galley and they all have on their casual clothes and they look great. Like everything about that feels right mm -hmm. for Voyager and it feels right for the, the context of where we are. This, yeah, the, the space, the Talaxian Club Med set is a little weird to begin with. Like, look, they can't all be Ryza, and even Ryza can't always be Ryza. Right. And then Tom and Harry come in, and wow, do things take a weird turn. Uh, should should Neelix have uh, stood his ground? Well, yeah, I thought he was trying to introduce them into something like culturally yeah. Talaxian. And, right. you know, right. all of a sudden, like, Tom and Harry, they're like, well, this is nice and relaxing, but could it be more fun, i.e., could it be more human fun? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And specifically our version of it. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you yeah. know, Harry obviously has, since it's a holodeck program, he has a fantasy of these women, you know, yeah. their programs. Yeah. Right. So he created yeah. them in a very specific way. And they're mm -hmm. this volleyball team. It's like, well, it's kind of like, of course, they're in shape. They're a volleyball team. Come on. We're adults. Yeah. You know, we all know yeah, what kind of like yeah, the tongue in cheek, yeah. you know, uh, excuse for that. And then Tom's like, hey, how about some 20th century Caribbean music? Well, of course, you're going to have kind of like a steel drum Jamaican player like in the background. So all of a sudden there were grass huts in Neelix's original program. But now these grass huts turn into, you know, party on the grill or something like that, like down yeah. in Jamaica. Right. <laughs> right. And it's like, yeah, it just tonally and texturally didn't work at all for me. And I'm not saying it's not going yeah. to, it's just, it's such a paradigm shift of what are we going to do with a holodeck this week? Who knows? Well, I mean, definitely it's not, it, it's supposed to be incongruous. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's definitely supposed to not work when it comes to what Neelix had versus what, 
Tom and Harry wanted. But just out of a show of respect, Tom and Harry are uh, they they impose themselves on this program a bit much. I hope we don't see this program again, mm. at least not the way it is. I, I'd rather go back to Chez Sandrine with its myriad characters who are also, you know, bubbling up with uh, strange desires and <laughs> libidos. I mean, I'm <laughs> yeah. just, just going to put it out there. Bill yeah. Tice had a fraction of the budget and mm-hmm. elegantly and sensually costumed his the women in yeah. the original series and i think yeah. that that was the lost opportunity here you could have done sensual you just didn't have yeah. to do 90s tacky okay the the night yeah the the 90s tacky swimsuit and uh and kind of weird like workout gear it, it that did not play like uh, risa was always designed a bit better and even like we didn't bring up the look of the women in false prophets because also very sexualized but also very very much in tune with what we would expect Frankie to culture. be there yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah exactly so yeah look you you can't win them all but since we're talking about sexuality here a bit mm. got to talk about Tyrion. Yeah, because I feel like this was a really interesting road to go down, also with some missed opportunities. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, maybe it's a bit much to expect of this particular episode in this particular time in Star Trek's history, but would it have been too much to see Tyrion slash Kess really go there in the kiss with Nori? Which gets interrupted conveniently the way these things get interrupted in TV and then really go there with the seduction of Amaron right after. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's put it in context. Rejoined on DS9 where Jedzia Dax is you know, reunited with a lover who's a woman. That had aired in October of 95. This episode of Voyager airs in November of 96. I feel like we're not treading too much new ground here. And would it have been so much to just really go for it? And I have to wonder if this was a conversation in the writer's room. I have to wonder if this was something that got filmed in multiple ways, like that famous interracial kiss in TOS. And then, you know, you kind of pick and choose what you're going to show. Because then, then you got the kiss between Kess and Tuvok. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really Tyrion and Tuvok, right? So it's a very interesting idea about how Tyrion is using this body. Mm-hmm. So is Tyrion bisexual, or or is Tyrion just someone who uses seduction as one more weapon, as as one more arrow in the quiver? Because also, don't forget all that that. The, the marriage mm-hmm. <laughs> and the implied, uh, shall we say, arrangement between Tyrion, Amaron, and Nori. That, that's the moment when uh, Tyrion, as Kes, says, you know, he wants them to be very, very close. And this, this is a moment that Voyager was getting a, a bit more interesting with the character. But then again, I feel like pulled the punches like you can't go too far. Right. Yeah, there, there's that yeah. whole, okay, this scene is going to like cross like a few of the seven deadlies, but we're on network TV, so we can't, right? Yeah, you yeah. Know? And well, yeah, okay. Uh, DS9 was syndicated. Uh, Voyager was leading UPN. Exactly. So yeah. that's where okay. they, they can't because they're on a now an actual network channel, right? Yeah. Um, hmm. The way I saw it with, with Tyrion is that, okay, as Kess... With Nori, that's Tyrion's sexuality with his wife. You know, yeah, so that's okay. that's okay. that's. I'm I'm terrible with the phrasing. So is that heteronormative? Sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's Tyrion operating in that that way. Yeah. With Amaron, it's using Kess's physicality to secure the political relationship between a man and a woman, i.e., standardized marriage in that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. It's not Tyrion saying like I'm attracted to Amaron. It's I'm gonna use this. I'm gonna use this body that if, you know, appropriated, stolen, you know, as yeah. a way to be able to cement this relationship to consolidate my power. There's that. And then the thing with Tuvok, I think he's using Kess again as a weapon 
in order to unsettle Tuvok to break through the logical defenses of this rigid Vulcan mind. Yeah. But I think somewhere along the line, because we, I don't think that in 1996 we were at that point socially, you know, culturally as, you know, or globally culturally using terms like I identify with, right? So yeah. sure. I don't think that we can apply that with Tieran identifying himself as a woman or as Tieran for mm-hmm. these for the reasons aside from using whatever application of his combined physical being to his advantage and weaponizing that to consolidate power. But I don't think it, it's like if they did it today, I think mm-hmm. that they would be able to one push the content and the context for way further. Yeah. But yeah. in, in a way where I think they would be able to address that type of identity, sexual identity politics. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, all I'm saying is there is a whole other uh, story about to be told <laughs> that was Tyrion, Amaron, and Nori. And uh, they just kind of dropped that right there. And um, who knows what would have been. The only thing scarier than fading out on Neelix's feet, the words to be continued fading in afterward. Well, John, we've made it to the end of Warlord, and I don't think that you and I, I don't think we've turned into despots, so we're safe. I, hey, look, you, you don't know what I'm doing later. There, there might be some, uh, you know, some seduction involved, some uh, consolidating power, and uh, trying to overthrow a small government. Oh, we one can know. only hope, you know. The night is young. The things are looking young. up. Things are looking yep. up. But <laughs> at the end of the episode, speaking of things that are looking up, we are looking at... Does this episode hold up as we do at the end of our mission log review? And then um, we will get into does the episode have any morals or meanings or messages that we were able to mine from this? So um, before John does what he needs to do, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, becomes a despot or not, (laughs) I can't prove anything. Never know. No. We're going to get his thoughts on does the episode hold up for him? Okay. Here's where I really give this episode points moves along at a nice brisk pace the action is well staged so you know we we mentioned a few of those moments earlier on but like those scenes in that imperial hall of Kess well Tyrion as Kess walking around looking for the infiltrator like it just little things like that that on the surface look simple but are actually very complex and have a layer of energy behind them really work well in this episode and front and center is Jennifer Lean mm-hmm. just getting to chew the scenery. And I feel like she is, she's sometimes overlooked as Cass, or she is sometimes just relegated to the same expression as Cass very often. So it's always nice when we get to see her do something else, when the character is just given a chance and Jennifer absolutely brings it. That said, Uh, This episode is just a fun romp. It's one of those, how do you change a character without changing a character episodes? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you do that in the Mary Universe, and sometimes you do that with a space virus. Sometimes you use the holodeck, whatever the tool, whatever the, the excuse is. What you're looking for here, what we're after is just breaking our character out of the typical mold where we see them and just let the actor fly. Just let them go. And that's what we get here in a battle of wills, you know, battle of wits story that otherwise isn't really of much consequence. Mm-hmm. But it is fun. Now, when I say it isn't of much consequence, what I'm hoping is that we get what we haven't gotten before and we've pointed it out where something very profound happens, like, I don't know merging Tuvok and Neelix into a separate being who lives with the crew for three months and then gets ripped apart on a molecular atomic level. And then we never address that again. (laughs) Or Harry Kim dying and, you know, slightly alternate universe from a few seconds difference jumps in to take the reins Mm -hmm. and we never address it again. We end this episode saying that Kess has been through this profound change. And I want to know if that's going to lead somewhere. Yeah. Now, 
in the greater scheme of things, is the character change, you know, is the being inhabited by a warlord? Like, is this what Star Trek is all about? Probably not, you know. But what it is a sign of when we talk about does the episode hold up, at least in in my framing of this right now, it is a sign of the production. It is a sign of Star Trek just humming along under its own power and churning out something that is fun and entertaining and puts the spotlight on an actor who doesn't always get the spotlight and succeeding with that. So I think if that is the expectation, if those are the parameters, holds up very nicely. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I mean, I have a little bit of a different take on Kess, but good. I I agree that it's like a workhorse episode. It's a very serviceable Mm. episode, you know, It's a Mm -hmm. very paint-by-numbers episode, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, sometimes you just need a very standard burgers and fries. Gets the job done, satisfying up to a point, kind of makes you wish, "Mm, I wish I had a little bit more. And that's Mm -hmm. where I kind of come into, you know, with with Jennifer Lee in here. Now, I think that she's fantastic, and I think that it's so fun to watch her (laughs) cut loose with this character, you know, with Kess being Tyrion. But I think that... The character of Kieran, I think, has done a disservice because we're not seeing, I think, the full complexity of this character because I think that 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 nuanced needed to bring out Kieran, I don't think that Jennifer gave that to us. Mm. Now, now to kind mm. of – to encapsulate that when what Spock said in Mirror Mirror, it's far easier for civilized men to act as barbarians than barbarians to act as civilized men. Yeah. And I think that somewhere along the line, we Kess didn't bring out the barbarian of Tyrion that we needed in order to sell this despot that's so desperate to continue his reign of terror these past 200 years. Mm. I think that she brought out like the the mere universe version of a Kess. Right, where she's <laughs> right. aggressive yeah. and bombastic and overbearing, mm-hmm. you know, and and coarse. That's not yeah. her, right? Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's Tyrion. Right. Right. So right. that's kind of like where I have this distinction of I think that Jennifer did a great job being not Kess, but not necessarily bringing Kieran to life. That's an interesting idea because you know, look, if you want to take the thirty thousand foot view here. You could say that this is another situation where we don't actually know the history of the politics. Maybe Tyrion's the right guy. <laughs> Maybe. I'll you know get what? to that. I'll yeah, get to uh, that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. okay. Sorry. No, it's okay. No, no it's, yeah. that's a great point. And, I, and I'm glad that you brought it up because I am, I am going to eventually address that. Good, uh, good. You know, in, in a second. But yeah. I think that she, she has the capacity to go dark. She has the capacity to go deeper. And I think that maybe she saw Leigh McCloskey's version of Tyrion and mm-hmm. tried to mimic that to bring a more seamless transition between Kess and the actor being Tyrion than making her own Tyrion for, mm-hmm. her, for her own acting ability, her own agency. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I wasn't there. I'm just speculating because I feel that when I watch her act as Kieran and watch him act as Tyrion, it's the same performance. Yeah. So I'm not seeing something new from her until after I see this guy play Tyrion. So Got it. that's Got it. that's all I'm saying. I think that she did a great job. It's awfully Herculean to shift gears like that for an actor. So And it was fun watching her do that. Uh, there's a B story. I get it. They're trying out new stuff with the holodeck. They're making things lighter. They're making things a little bit more fun, maybe a little bit more contemporary. Uh-huh. Is that always in Star Trek's best interests? We'll, 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 we'll find out, you know. But I think the, the big thing about this episode is that you're absolutely right, John. And, and you said that uh, it doesn't really – unless something pays off with what happened with Kiss's development at the end, then this episode really goes nowhere. Right. Yeah. Because if it's a reset button on, we 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 made and pointed out that uh, made light of and pointed out that there's a reset button that's hit with Voyager getting home, but there are also reset buttons that are being hit with character development. Yeah. Right. And I think that's actually more dangerous in the long run because you can keep the ship out there, 
but you need your characters to grow, right? Yeah. And without that growth, we as the audience lose investment, right? And that would be dangerous for this character who we're cheering for so hard because we rarely get a chance to see Keskaro. She has the ability here. Even Tuvok said specifically, you're going to change. You just have to decide <laughs> how. And if she doesn't, I think that would be a huge misstep. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. I think that is all well said and all fair. And uh, the, the place that I'm running into a bit of a wall mm-hmm. is where we are now, looking for a message, a moral, a meaning. To me, this is that serviceable, as you said, burger and fries episode. And, and a burger and fries can be very tasty. Sure. But maybe they aren't the most nutritious meal to have, certainly not week after week after week. I'm disappointed this episode didn't have somewhere to go with that interesting sexuality happening with Tyrion and using Kess's body, et cetera, and working through what all those myriad relationships are. There could have been something to mine from that. But I keep coming back to this last scene and how that last scene relates to the scene in Act 1 with Tyrion slash Kess having this difficult conversation with Neelix. And, you know, this is sort of the the sci-fi fantasy of it all that plays into what we sort of want and wish from ourselves sometimes, that we can take a step back in our own lives, that we can look at our lives through the eyes of somebody else, and maybe that helps, or maybe in some cases doesn't help, but at least gives a new perspective on those difficult, particularly relationship issues that we need to deal with. So maybe in that case, and again, we'll see where it goes week after week as this story uh, develops, as Kess develops, and as Neelix's relationship to her develops, maybe there's something to be taken out of this about that opportunity that Kess had to actually be a spectator in her own life, and whether or not that helps somebody to make a better decision. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens. Uh, that's about the most profound thing that I can drag out of this. What about you, my friend? <laughs> well, I wanted to return to what you said um, moments ago when you said maybe we should take a look at this from like 30,000 feet and yeah. say we don't even know the politics you know, on yeah. Alari. We don't even know if, if Kieran was the right person in order to bring and consolidate this world for better, maybe not so much worse. Right? We don't know. Right, we're only picking a side because a side needs to be picked to tell the story. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're seeing all the politics involved, which in Star Trek gives the captain the ability to make the choice for the right reasons. Right? Yeah. So, the message that I found here: fool me once, Delta Quadrant, shame on you. <laughs> fool me twice, Delta Quadrant, shame on me. Right. Ooh. So maybe before yeah. jumping into action, Jane, we should ask. So what's in it for us? Mm. Oh, and that, and that I know everyone's ears are probably like, you know, boiling, you know, but <laughs> hear me out. All right. Hear yeah. me out. People okay. out there in the audience that are listening to this, that are saying, Norm, that's not the Starfleet way. You know that. Okay. <laughs> I, I you know I know that, but hear yeah. me out. Yeah. So remember that time when Janeway sided with the trade before she knew who they were? Ooh. Yeah. How did that go? Yeah. Not, not well. Right. And then there were even moments before that where she met with other beings, other worlds, other government representatives who said that you're the ship of death that just entered the Delta Quadrant. Ever since you arrived, things have gone badly where they shouldn't have gone badly. Hmm. That has preceded her reputation on multiple occasions. That's a fact. That's canonical. So when there's a distress, <laughs> when there's a distress <laughs> call... Maybe there should be a bit more caution involved before launching a rescue mission. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I'm just saying because of these past events and what we've learned in this episode that maybe Janeway should, you know, be advised a little bit more critically by her first officer and Tuvok, right? Because now we know that Janeway has been wronged for doing right. So you would think that she would be a little bit more apprehensive about those decisions moving forward. Okay. So, I mean, even false prophets have the potential for them getting home through a wormhole. Saving a random shuttle in the middle of nowhere has potential for nothing. Right. (laughs) But let's look at the scorecard after she said saved shuttle or saved said shuttle. Yeah. 
After they saved it, they saved three renegades who they didn't know, including Tyrion, a 200-year-old warlord who continues his reign of terror, Demis's father, an innocent man and a legitimate ruler of the planet below, was assassinated. Kess was almost killed. People were killed in the, in the coup that took over Alari by Tyrion and his people. So again, what's the cost of doing the right thing in the Delta Quadrant versus doing the other right thing and just focusing on getting your crew home? So, so what you're saying is that like Janeway is the one who walks into the museum and sees the portrait of Vigo the Carpathian, and she's like, <laughs> "Yeah, I think I'll take that and hang it up in my ready room." It's just Vigo. It right? looks good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like I know you want to do the right thing, and that's the star for the way. I get that. And if you are in the Alpha Quadrant, you should do that because that's where the Federation flexes its authority, and you have mm. the resources and backup to do good. But if you're just trying to get your crew home. Get them home, right? Yeah. <laughs> Get Unless the opportunity is so good or your situation is so dire, don't side quest. People die on side quests, right? Stay uh, on they, the road. They lost a uh, transporter tech in this one. Our, our crew is dwindling so again. Yeah. Our, and so far, are any of the allies that they've met in the Delta Quadrant, have they panned out to anything at all? <laughs> Right. So what's the answer? Fool me a third time? Fool me a fourth time? I mean, when, when does it end? Hey, I, we've only got who knows how many seasons to go and, uh, you know, another, what, 68 years to get home. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, the Q and the Gray. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. Do you ever feel like you're just not yourself? Check your feet to make sure you're not suddenly Talaxian. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.